a lot of guessing at the start of that sales process uh, and, that, and that kind of sales formula. Over time, a lot less guessing, but then the guessing changed uh, when we moved in the enterprise again because we had to do it all over again, you know, just repeat that process. But it, yeah, it really just became a formula. Welcome to a special episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business and recorded live here at the Unvalley 2021 conference. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Yes, we are really excited. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, just welcome to the ROI family and the Kelly family uh, in general. And welcome for all those joining us here at the Unvalley 2021 uh, conference. We are unbelievably honored of all the panels you got to choose to sit into. You're choosing to sit in with us. Uh, so we're Thank honored you. that we're, you're going to spend your time with us. So Let's talk about what to expect. Today, we're going to be covering the topic of how to evolve your sales, marketing, and client success goals through the different rounds of funding. So through this event, if you have any questions that you want to be answered, we're going to try to set some time aside at the end that we could try to get to as many as possible because we are limited on time, but we want to make sure we address your questions. Uh, so let's jump into it. I'm, I'm honored to be joined by Todd Saxon. He's the Associate Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at the Kelly School of Business, and he's the co-author of the Titanic Effect, successfully navigating the uncertainties that sink most startups, as well as Max Yoder, the CEO of Lessonly. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Unvalley 2021. Let's have some fun. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, and thanks everybody for tuning in. Excited. Yeah. So let's let's dive into you know this idea of funding. Obviously, Max, you have a really cool story about how you grew your company lessonly. So let's walk through some of what of those some of those rounds of funding that you've had to experience, uh, you know, as an organizational leader. Yeah, we kicked off when we had about three customers, about a thousand dollars in uh, monthly recurring revenue. Uh, so you know, twelve thousand dollars a year. Uh, we kicked off a fundraising round that was our angel round, and that was really just going to you know individuals who had some cash. Uh, that they could afford to, to lose. Um, and we really came to them and said, hey, uh, right now we're selling this software at you know, $50 per month, $100 per month. Uh, we see a path to selling at $1,000 per month, um, which you know at the time felt really far away, but ultimately we got there pretty darn quickly. Um, but that angel round was just basically saying, you're betting on you know three customers and the team. And uh, we, we, we'll, we'll value the business in such a way that if you buy in now, you know, um, uh, you have some big upside if we make this work, um, and we'll, we'll we'll be good stewards of your cash. I think we raised actually know how much we raised. We raised two hundred twenty four thousand nine hundred fifty dollars in that first round, fifty <laughs> bucks of two hundred twenty five thousand. And then you know next next one we went to a seed round where we had one institutional investor in Alice Ventures, but all another angel round, mostly an angel round otherwise. And then our Series A when we had about I'd say we were right around a million dollars in, in, in ARR at that point in our Series A, we raised you know our bigger five million dollar round, and then. B and C from there on out. And at that point, you know, we were really going to straight institutional investors on the A, B, and C. You know, Todd, I want to bring you in kind of some more, some broader things. I mean, what do you see from like the academic and the research side? You know, what are some of those rounds of funding and what organizational leaders need to do? I mean, especially doing your research with with your book on what a lot of the things that sink a lot of these startups, you know, where, where do and how do organizational leaders navigate through the rounding of funding so they don't sink their business? Yeah. So, first of all, congrats to to Max and Lessonly for all you've accomplished. And thanks, man. 
24, remember that number uh, so I can recommend that. Um, so uh, I, I tend to think of those rounds as kind of 550, 500. Um, the, the 5,000 is like you can get stand up a website and, uh, you know, start making progress uh, with, with, with 5K, uh, which is obviously not a lot of money. You can self fund and, and at least kind of put a stake in the ground as to what you want to try and do. Uh, the 50 kind of hopefully gets you to that MVP, maybe the first customer, uh, start being able to move forward. And then that 500, in, in Max's case, it was uh, 224. Uh, and, and there's obviously a big range around the kind of startup you are. Um, it can, can really get you to the point where you can then go and, and land the angel to uh, seed slash A round, uh, you know, million plus. Uh, and, and with each of those rounds, there, there are a few kind of milestones that, that you hope to hit to get to that next inflection point and that investors might be looking for. So, you know, that initial 5,000, all that that does is get you an aim and a, uh, a website, but you can start to move toward proof of concept. By the time you're building that MVP, you should have a pretty good understanding of the market. You should have talked to customers. Any investor would expect that, even if it's friends and family. And, you know, started to think about that product market fit, who, you, who are you gonna really target to get traction? Um, <clears throat> by the time you're raising you know, more serious money, if you will, that 500, you know, you have to be prepared that you and, and probably some other support teams are going full time with it. Uh, and, and that you have started to understand, you know, what it takes to actually land a customer, how much time, what's your customer acquisition cost, uh, start to track things like renewal rate, uh, how many are, are not renewing at, at the end of that period. Uh, and once you're able to kind of tell that story, you can can raise more money, but but more meaning, more importantly, uh, really start to get some traction towards scaling the venture. You know, and I want to remind our audience, if you have a question throughout this, jump on over to the Q&A uh, portion here and definitely ask as we go. We want to leave some time aside so that we can answer your questions as well because we're going to try to cover a lot, uh, but we don't want you guys uh, to be missed at all. Uh, so, you know, jumping into kind of the, that funder side, you know, kind of jumping onto what funders are looking for, you know, can you go into what are some of the inflection points or metrics that a lot of these funders look for in terms of sales and marketing at various stages of funding do you want me to take that one yeah why don't you start max yeah so uh, in our case we wanted sales repeatability uh you know we wanted to see usage and sales repeatability so one of the things that was great advice from mike fitzgerald who helped me start the business he was like uh hire hire three salespeople at a time not one not two but three uh and what you'll find is there's some cooperative uh, we he calls it competition you know i think that's a word he used where there's cooperation and there's competition so, you know, we have some camaraderie on, we all started on the same day with those salespeople. You know, they, they come aboard, uh, they are um, getting the playbooks together. They're learning the same stuff at the same time, which is incredibly important because if we start them at different days, they potentially have the excuse of, well, you know, I might've missed something, which is why I'm, I'm struggling. Whereas you start on the same day, give them all the same onboarding. Uh, they they, they kind of, there's no excuse, right? If one of them is crushing it and the others are not, um, it might be indicative of data or it might just be that one of them is just an all-star. But when you have three, you, you know, you, you get you get more information. They have the shoulders to cry on between one another. They can celebrate between one another. And there's a nice level of competition where if one of them starts to really push, the other people are like, oh, hey, I should maybe move a little harder. Um, and so that, that, that also brings some repeatability, right? If we can show that, you know, two out of those three people were able to hit their quota in the first six months, that makes investors happy. And if we can keep doing that, you know, investors go, oh, wow, this is a sales and marketing machine, right? We, it becomes more of, a, of an engine where we know we're putting a dollar in is going to get us more than a dollar out. I'll I think uh, cycling back a little bit earlier, uh, I kind of think of the, the three no's as being 
uh, inflection points or, or milestones that, that you can track. Uh, the first is what's the ratio of no's to yeses uh, mm. in, in terms of how many customers are willing to continue the discussion, kind of move through the funnel, not necessarily go to sign on the bottom line, but how many emails do you have to send to get one click through? Um, uh, you know, how many customers do you have to talk to to get one follow-up meeting? How many follow-up meetings lead to proposals and tracking that no to yes ratio and, and hopefully the number of yeses and the ratio of yeses is growing over time as you're learning as, as Max was talking about through your salespeople or, or as a founding team. Um, another milestone is learning not just who can say yes in your customer organization, but who can say no and how do either you uh, kind of fend that off or arm your internal champion with the information to be able to convince those no-sayers uh, into yeses. And, and a lot of CEO, chief compliance officer in healthcare, there are a number of different roles that can say no. Uh, but, but understanding who that is and, and what their objections are going to be uh, and being armed or arming your, your advocate. Uh, and then finally, the first time you say no to a customer. Uh, is really huge and, and investors like to hear that because it means that you're not just chasing every dollar, but you focused in on the type of customer, the type of account that's a good fit with the company, a good fit with your culture and, and that you're able to actually say no uh, to, to a customer when it comes to either new development or, or even renewing a contract uh, and, and they're just no longer kind of in the sweet spot for, for the company. So I'm just going to follow up on that. There became a big liability point in our business where after our Series A, you know, we're about a million dollars in revenue, where if we did not focus, we ran the risk of continuing to bring on customers who were not great fits. And then the next year we pay for that in a big way, right? The sales engine is digging out of a hole because we we were, you know, maybe short-sighted in bringing on customers that we we knew would churn the next year. So um, we had to look at ourselves and say, is this training software for, for any need or is this training software for sales and customer service teams? And if we made it sales and customer service teams, we had to zero in, right? And we had to say no to a lot more stuff. And But that discipline was great for our product. It was great for our sales and marketing efforts because we could focus. Um, it's, it changed the whole trajectory of the business. But it meant in the short term, we probably weren't going to close as many deals. But we had an investor that was cool with that, right? That was literally like, uh, uh, suggesting that was a good idea. Um, and I think that kind of alignment is huge. That investor that was willing to say, hey, we'll take some short-term pain for some long-term gain. You know, and, and taking a step back a little bit, you, there, you get to the, the idea of who, like, who do you sell to? I mean, obviously, you know, once you get to those, you know, who you can finally start saying no, the three no's and all the other points you guys are bringing up. Let's take a step back even further. I mean, where do you even begin? Like, who do you start to sell your concept to, whether, whether that's within customers or investors and stakeholders as well? And how do you juggle that? Yeah, I, I go to Jeff Reedy. He says, just, you know, just sell it. So whether you have a product or not, pick up the phone and call the people who you want to buy your product and uh, start selling it to them. Tell them it's going to be around in six months. Tell them what it's going to do. Uh, you know, get them to sign uh, letters of intent that they will pay for it when they come, uh, uh, when, when it's there, when, it's, when, it, when it exists. But I would not go sell an investors first. I'd go get some business in the door. I'd go get $50 per month contracts. That is so. That speaks so many more volumes than you know uh, whatever investor deck looks like. I got three people paying for this, and, they, and they're not my, my brother, my sister, and my mom. I'm not, uh, you get the idea. Uh, just getting out there and getting somebody to pay something is incredibly validating. And it doesn't have to be the price that I'm going to sell it for a year from now or two years from now, right? Just get people to, to trade their money for whatever it is that, you know, you're pitching. I think that's huge. Uh, and, and I think too often entrepreneurs uh, are worried more about the, the name of their company or how their deck looks to investors and just going out there and doing the hard work of getting rejected by saying, you know, by, by going to people and asking, will you pay for this six months from now when it's available? 
Yeah, and, and just to add to that, I think people have the feeling that selling is about talking. And good selling, especially early on, is it's as important to be a good listener as it is to be a good talker. Yeah. And you really need to develop that deep understanding of the problem and the pain point of your customer so that you're using their language, you're showing that depth of knowledge, and you're, you're again, you're listening as much as you are talking. So uh, selling is a two-way street and understanding the problem is, is kind of the starting point. And at that point, having those customer conversations, listening, being responsive before you even put a solution in front of them uh, is is really important, but then you know this this kind of this combination of the inflection point that you you asked about earlier. But uh, it's so important to translate that. Hey, we had some really good customer conversations too. Even if you don't have something you know to put in front of them to pay for yet, at least you get that letter of intent, that LOI saying, yeah, when when they bring this to me, I'm going to kick off a pilot, and we're willing. If you can structure it this way, we're willing to pay X per month. You know, once yep. we have a successful pilot, so you're actually able to quantify uh, what that looks like. And, and again, to investors, but also to to the venture and your confidence, that's really huge. Don't oh, yeah. don't go um, for the uh, yeah, we, we think this looks really good. We think we might be able to use this. <laughs> um, yep. A lot of people will say that. But converting to actually, you know, a paying customer is, is such a big, big step. Oh, yeah. Let's just double down on that point. People will tell you all day long, especially if they like you, that this is going to work. But as soon as you ask them to pay money, that's when you really find out how much they think it's going to work. So ask them to pay some money. And that leads into the next question, the idea of selling, especially within startups. I mean, there, there can be this thing of, is, am I always going to be selling? And so I think that becomes a valid question. So as a startup, are you always just selling? Mm. I'd say my experience is yes. Uh, I'm selling different things at different times though, you know, and, and, um, by selling, what I mean is just, you know, making it clear what we do and what we don't do, making it clear why we do it and why, we, you know, and why we think it matters. And if you see a need there, then you're coming aboard. That could be product driven, right? It could be I'm selling around what our software does. It could also be I'm selling around how our team operates, you know, to a potential employee. Um, in, in any given time, I got to be selling. Uh, and But what I'm selling will change over time, you know, and it could change meeting to meeting. And, and I think... Um there's a difference between always selling versus always being ready to sell. Um, and, and I do think it's important for, for founders in that early stage, you're going to be in that trough of despair at some points. And if you, you know, just always trying to sell your way out of it, that could mean you're not listening, that, that you're not really, uh, you know, kind of understanding, maybe empathizing with others. Um, but, but also to, to Max's point, people think about selling as, as customers, but, you know, it is you're you're selling your your potential co-founders, your early employees, in, in some cases, family members, right, who who are making sacrifices to support you. And you have to be able to convince them that that uh, it's worth the investment and that you're solving an important problem and, and that they're part of it. Right. They're not outside the circle. They are very much inside the circle, um, which which, you know, again, selling with like that negative, <laughs> you know, I, I, I got to get a commission for doing this uh, is, is not what we're talking about. But um, being being able to, you know, persuade others to, to join and support whatever that looks like. Right. Uh, and, and yes, primary stakeholders are certainly customers and investors. But uh, as Max said, you, you have to at least be ready uh, to have that convincing, you know, it's you, you don't always get in on an elevator and give everybody there your elevator pitch. But when you get on an elevator and you see like the investor sticker on the badge, it's good to be able to go into that mode and, and have yeah. that, you know, kind of in your back pocket. 
You know, and then we get into the idea of scaling because at some point, you know, as we're getting funds and as we're going through the rounds, I mean, we do have to scale so we can show that, hey, look, we are using the the funds correctly. We are growing as an organization. So how do you, you know, Max, let's like to get your insight, you know, as you were growing lessonly, you know, how did you begin to scale your sales plan through each round of funding that your company went through? Yeah, it became it became very formulaic, you know, because we we, we became it became more predictable. Uh, you know, when we first started our account executive team um, selling to kind of the mid market, uh, mid market being you know a less than a thousand employees in the in the company, um, which you know is re- really where we we grew the business and and that's our foundation of our business. Um, we had a lot we didn't know, and then over time we started to see, oh hey, put this many leads at the top of the funnel, hand them to the AEs. Uh, and you know, those AEs build relationships and they tend to close this many percent and it became so formulaic that it was like, wow, we have a repeatable process here. So then it's, then it, then it became, okay, um, we're going to raise this money. Our growth rate is going to have to be why as a, you know, we're gonna have to get to 20 million as a result of this. Um, we can do that over two years. Uh, and we're going to need this many salespeople, this many marketing folks to do it. Um, and then we started looking at, oh, Hey, the commercial side, really repeatable enterprise side, a, a place that we kind of got pulled into by bigger customers. We, we don't have as much insight there, right? So uh, that's probably going to be a place where we're going to have uh, to make more guesses. And it's going to kind of be like a repeat of the commercial side in the early days of the commercial side of our business or mid-market side, I'm sorry. Um, so what I'm getting at is a lot of guessing at the start of that sales process uh, and, that, and that kind of sales formula. Over time, a lot less guessing. But then the guessing changed uh, when we moved in the enterprise again because we had to do it all over again, you know, just repeat that process. Um, but it, yeah, it really just became a formula is my short answer. Yeah, and, and I think if you can reduce it, um, essentially by the time you're going for your A round or you know venture capital two to five million plus, basically part of what you're doing is saying, we've got the product to the point where it's scalable, so we're using this money to invest in a salesperson and the marketing that goes along with that, and our investment of 200,000 a year is gonna yield 500,000 or 800,000 or, or more. And as Max was suggesting earlier, you hire three, and that investment for one of those salespeople is likely to only return maybe two hundred thousand, and maybe not even pay for for the cost of that salesperson and, and marketing that goes along with it. And you have to let them go. But hopefully, you have the superstar who who is yielding a million on that investment. And on average, you're showing at least two to three times the dollar spent on sales and marketing in in return. A um, couple other pieces, you know, we we talked about. Um, the, the, what is the acquisition cost of a customer? How does it cost to land them in terms of kind of fully loaded everything you put money into? Um, how long do they stay and what's their lifetime value? Kind of payback over years, hopefully. Uh, and you can really put together a pretty compelling um, you know, pitch for, for how you're going to spend money and, and what that's going to turn around for you. And, and as Max said, every time you shift segments, you have to recreate that learning process of understanding those those numbers and, and how that's yep. going to work for, for that new segment. I want to start yep. jumping into some questions from our audience. If you do have a question, please, please, please go over to the Q&A portion uh, in the chat window and submit your questions. Um, but this one comes from Rick. He says, compliance was mentioned earlier. Any thoughts about when to go after SOC2, type 2, etc.? Yeah. Um, so, so we, we started doing SOC 2 uh, compliance maybe two, two and a half years ago. Hired a gentleman named Steve Cornett who, you know, that's what he knows how to do. Um, and it was one of those things that we did not uh, need to do until we started moving more into the enterprise. You know, the, the mid-market companies were very comfortable with us not being SOC 2 compliant. 
the bigger co companies were like, hey, this is a prerequisite, you know? So, so, so ultimately, that's when we made the switch. Is that, is that helpful or would you like me to double down anymore? I can kind of broaden too, if, if Rick's typing in a follow-up, uh, just broaden to, you know, for example, if you're in, in healthcare, you can't afford to wait uh, to, to make sure, for example, that you're HIPAA compliant if you have a communication platform. So there are certain compliance issues that go with being in regulated industries like healthcare, like renewable energy, uh, and, and those, those are table stakes. You don't have the luxury of saying, yeah, we'll worry about HIPAA once we start you know, selling to big health systems. If you're dealing with health data, you need to out of the gate really understand that right. and, and nail that down. Uh, so it does depend to some degree on the nature of the venture, I think, as to where compliance comes in and, and can either help you or, or hold you back. Rick also mentioned you can feel free to shamelessly plug your audit partner uh, if you want, Max. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to plug Steve Cornett uh, uh, because he was, the, he was the person who really drove it forward. He's at 120 Water Audit now. What a, what a genius. Awesome. This next question comes from Matt. He says, what was one of the most challenging transitions for you as a leader and did that affect the company culture? Yeah. Every time we've grown the business in any scale, so, you know, every time we've gone from 17 people to 30, then 30 to 60, um, it always is going to uh, uh, change the culture, you know, and it, uh, we don't try to keep the culture the same. We try to, you know, make it an additive thing. We're going to lose some stuff. We're going to lose some closeness. You know, when we go from 17 people to 30, can't all sit around the table anymore. Um, but we're going to gain some things as well. Right. We all get to probably pay ourselves a little bit more uh, as the company gets bigger. So that's fun. You know, we can feel a little more secure. Um, we're going to be able to, uh, open up new roles, you know, or things that we always want to remind folks is yes, we're going to go from 30 people to 60 people or now, you know, now 200 to 300. And that's going to be challenging, but there's going to be jobs and opportunities that we would have never seen in the past, uh, that, that will exist now. And, and many of you will take those jobs and opportunities. So, you know, don't see this as a big loss of like, you know, everything's going to change, which I think is how most people tend to see it, right? When the culture goes from 200, 300 people. Even the person who just got into the company, you know, yesterday, they're looking at me going, how do we keep this, you know, how do we keep this a good thing? Um, and we just let them in the door the day before and they kind of want to close the door now on everybody else and be like, hey, let's keep this the way it is, you know. Uh, uh, but I think, you know, the heart of it is just simply that they, they like what they're seeing and they worry that going from 200 to 300, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change in ways that aren't great. Um, and I think I, I, I turn around to each person and say, uh, you know, the values of our business. I've got a book that I wrote on the values. You get that book read that book, you live out those values, this thing's not, not gonna have any problems, right? But if you expect others to live out those values and you're not willing to live them out yourself, we're gonna have a lot of problems. So, you know, let's, let's, let's take the onus on ourselves to, 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 to make this culture what we want it to be by, by living out the values. Um, it's gonna be challenging, any growth is challenging, any growth is gonna have pros and cons. I'm not gonna try to sell you some perfect utopian future. Uh, it's gonna be a little bit of both. Um, but, you know, take the responsibility on yourself as an individual on the team to say, how do I want my teammates showing up every day and do I show up that way? Well, and Matt, to uh, just elaborate a little bit too um, on something that, that Max raised, which I think is so important, is it's, it's more about the values that you express as opposed to how you operationalize those values. So, you know, for example, uh, and, and this is a simplistic example, but hopefully it'll maybe make the point, uh, you know, if, if early on, on their birthdays, the founder or CEO, you know, takes uh, somebody out to lunch, right? That, yeah. and, and you can do that at 10 people. Maybe you can do that at 30 or 40 people. By the time you're three or 400 people, that just isn't going to work. But that doesn't mean you don't find a way to celebrate it, to, to appreciate, you know, unique. 
But cultures have to evolve. They have to evolve with funding, uh, with with being larger, with having investors. Just having that pressure of investors and being able to return dollars uh, uh, drives a lot of change in culture. So, uh, and, and those are often uh, again back to the core question. Those raise some of those challenges. I think as as leaders. Uh, evolve with their companies, and sometimes those leaders aren't the right fit to continue to grow the company behind uh, beyond several hundred people, uh, right. and and that's okay. Totally okay. You know, as as we begin to wrap up here, uh, I want to get into we were talking very sales focused, and you know everything's all about selling. But is there a point, and I guess when do you start to put the majority of focus from sales into the marketing realm, or when do you when do you kind of transition a little bit of that energy uh, to start marketing uh, your product? Yeah, I think about, um, I use Mike Fitzgerald's logic of at the beginning of the company, you want somebody making the software, you want somebody selling the software, and you want somebody serving the people who buy the software. So make, sell, serve is a nice way of breaking it down. And if you have individuals focused on those areas, um, then you have your bases covered. The sell side, we don't just want people selling, we also want people marketing. So what we did is we hired somebody to make the product, we hired somebody to sell it, and then we hired somebody to help them market it at the same time. And then we hired somebody to serve the customers. So we started marketing early, you know, and, and, and what we did is started building content early. Mitch Causey, who runs Demandwell now, uh, built our content engine. You know, he was the third person to join the team. And uh, that content engine took a long time, but like five years in, and he told us it would, but five years in, it, it pays off in spades, right? More of our revenue now comes from content and inbound stuff uh, than, than outbound. So I guess what I'm getting at is we were always working on marketing. You know, it wasn't like sales first, then marketing. It was, it was both at the same time with the disparate uh, people with dif- disparate talents, you know, cooperating as, as they went. Does that make sense? And, and I would, yeah, and I, I'd also say that that is one of those milestones is initially the founders are doing everything, including in all likelihood, the marketing and the selling. Uh, at some point, you're able to hire somebody who probably covers both sales and marketing. Uh, but a real milestone is when you actually have two different people in those roles who respectively focus. And I think about it as the funnel and marketing is driving traffic into the funnel. Sales is taking you through the funnel and closing. And they have to talk to each other because if marketing is driving the wrong people into the funnel, sales is not going to be able to effectively close on that. Uh, right. So you want to have not just volume, but the right people that marketing are, are driving in through either outbound or, or inbound uh, messaging, et cetera. Well, unfortunately, you know, we do have to wrap this session up and we wish we could get to everyone's question. And we'd also hate that this conversation does have to end. But, you know, feel free to find Todd, find Max in different breakout sessions in different rooms. You know, be sure to uh, reach out and connect if you do have questions that haven't been answered. Or as you listen to, if you come back to our podcast and listen and things just start percolating again or you're starting to really soak in and you get some more questions, definitely find ways to connect and reach out. We're just so honored. Uh, Again, Todd Saxon, the Associate Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at the Kelly School of Business, also the co-author of The Titanic Effect, Successfully Navigating the Uncertainties that Sink Most Startups, and Max Yoder, CEO of Lessonly. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time uh, spending it here on the podcast and at Unvalley 2021. Thanks, y'all. Max, always great to be with you. Uh, If anybody wants to reach out, uh, I put my email uh, address there in the chat. You can see it. It's tsaxton at iu.edu. Feel free to reach out. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.